Good morning, everybody. Hope everybody is enjoying their weekend in this heat wave that's blowing through Cincinnati. Today is going to be our, our last week in the Unimaginable God series as we continue on in our journey through the book of Luke. Over the last year and a half, I personally have really enjoyed our study of the book of Luke. So when Chad asked me to come back and speak again, I was so excited to see what, what was today's exciting topic. What was today's, you know, life-changing passage. So when he sent it to me, I jumped right into the passage with excitement of Luke 21, 29 through 34. What does it say? It says, then he spoke to them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they are already budding, you see and know for yourselves that summer is now near. See, also when you, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. Assuredly, I say to you, this, this generation will by no means pass away till all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Yeah, thanks, Chad. What is this? Right? I mean, we look at the words right, that Luke writes today, and, and it's not very clear. Right? What's the message? Right? There isn't something that jumps out in a very overt kind of way. Now, it isn't, you know, confusing prophecy or, you know, complicated biblical imagery. I mean, the sentences are, are pretty coherent. I mean, I, I understand what is written, but I don't necessarily understand what is it that I'm supposed to walk away with. What is it that Jesus is asking me and asking us to do differently? And I share that to say that you're not alone. I come across passages like this in the Bible all the time where it's so easy just to, to read Nod, smile, turn the page, saying, thank you, Jesus, for teaching me about, about something. Right? And you move on. And that's one of the things that I love about Horizons Equipping Service, is that we actually take the time to really dive in verse by verse, right? not just picking the convenient topics, not just picking the, the fun, easy topics, but really taking the time to dig into the words right, that, the, that the authors have, that Jesus has and so for today, you know, I, I personally had to you know, spend time over two months preparing this. And as I did that, I began to dig beneath that surface. And for me personally, it, the text really has challenged me to, to check myself. To really assess what it is that I focus on and what it is that I prioritize in my life. That's even caused me to, to rethink and adjust how I pray. Now to see that, we have to really dig in and peel back the layers of this biblical onion, if you will. And when we look at the text today, we're going to see three layers in the first half of the text. And when we peel that back, we'll begin to see and understand what it is that Jesus wants us to walk away with. So to start, we need to understand the context, right, and the, and the, the setting of the passage. And so the, the verses before this, right, that Chad talked about last week, talk about signs, Right, and specifically signs involving Jesus' return. Signs in the sky, the moon, the stars, signs around the world. Right, so when Luke writes, then he spoke to them a parable, it is a natural continuation of that passage. Right, so this isn't, you know, two totally different things that happened, you know, three months apart. It is the natural progression of Jesus' conversation with the disciples. And he said, I've told you these signs, but now I'm going to tell you a parable to help illustrate my point, to help you understand what you're supposed to walk away with. Now, we can't know for certain as well when exactly this takes place, but given that Easter is soon approaching in the book of Luke, I think it's safe to assume that it is springtime, and there probably are buds on the trees all around the disciples, just like it is in Jesus' parable. So verses 29 and 30 say this, Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they are already budding, you see and know for yourselves that summer is now near. 
So the bud, right? We see, you know, a bud or a blossom on a tree. That, that just naturally triggers us to say, oh, it's springtime. Right? We wouldn't see one of those in winter. So when we see it, we know it's spring. And as it begins to blossom, we know that summer is progressing. And Jesus wants it to be the same thing with the signs. Verse 31, so you also, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. So, you know, these things, well, what things? Well, this is our first layer, and these things are the signs, right? So the signs that Jesus just talked about, right? The signs that indicate that his return will be coming. So, right, so when we see these signs, right, they should trigger us to know that the kingdom of God is near. Kingdom of God is such a unique and such critical phrase um, that Jesus uses throughout, you know, the book of Luke and the New Testament. And this is our second layer that we need to understand. And Drew did a fantastic job a few months ago really digging in and boiling down, you know, what is the kingdom of God? Why does Jesus choose those words? Where does he pull that from? But that took Drew about 30 minutes. I don't have an extra 30 minutes, so I'm going to try to boil it down for one sentence for us, and it would be this. The kingdom of God is Jesus is returning, and he will reign as king over this world and the world to come. And if you really want to dive in more to understand, you know, where Drew got that, I encourage you to pick up his message from early March. Because you see these, these two layers, right, the signs and the kingdom of God coming together, right, are really pointing us towards the core of what Jesus wants us to learn. Right? We see the signs, we see things begin to evolve, and that should trigger us to know that the kingdom of God is close at hand. An interesting element that we see tying those two images together is Jesus' use of the fig tree. And he actually uses the fig tree many times throughout the New Testament, and most often it's actually a stand-in for the nation of Israel or the Jewish people. And this isn't just in the New Testament. We actually see it in the Old Testament as well with the prophets. And they use similar imagery. Uh, One very clear example is in Jeremiah where it says, Jeremiah received the vision of two baskets of figs which represented Israel. Not much interpretation, I guess, needed there, right? So the fig tree, the figs, represent Israel. So why do I bring this up? Well, if we think back to the signs that Jesus shared previously, he shared two groups of signs. One group talking about Jerusalem, the destruction and occupation of it, and another group of signs about the world. And if we look at the parable, we see that same pattern. Look at the fig tree, look at Israel, and look at the other trees, look at the world. Jesus is very choiceful and deliberate in the imagery that he's using in this parable. That doesn't only apply to this text, it applies to the whole New Testament. Whenever Jesus is is, is speaking, he's almost always referencing something historical, cultural, or something from the Old Testament. And that's why it's so critical for us not to just nod, smile, and turn the page, but to actually dive into the text and really begin to understand what Jesus is trying to tell us. So let's move on. Verses 32 and 33 say this. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. So to this day, it's still debated and discussed, what does the phrase, this generation, mean? This generation. Who who is this generation? This group of people that are going to see the things, the signs, Right, come and they're going to see Jesus' return. So as I was you know, digging into this, I came across really three camps of thought. So the first camp of thought is probably what came to mind to you. It's actually what came to mind to me when I first read the passage. And that is, well, it's probably the disciples. I mean, Jesus is talking to the disciples. So he's saying, this generation. It's possible, but 
the disciples passed away, you know, in before 100 AD and, you know, the global signs haven't even taken place. That doesn't seem to fit for me. Now, some would argue that Jesus wasn't talking about that. He was just talking about his death, resurrection, and ascension, that the disciples would witness that. But I feel like that narrows the text too much because the text is really on a global scale. So the disciples, they don't fit the bill for me. The second camp of thought would be that this generation is the group of people who start to witness the signs. So whenever the signs begin, that generation, that lifetime, will see them come to completion and see Jesus return. It's also possible, but, but even with that one, we have to make an adjustment because the occupation and destruction of Jerusalem took place in 70 AD. So when it says this generation will not pass away, well, that must only apply to the global signs, which is a fair interpretation. Or third... The interpretation would be that it is mankind as a whole, the human race. Now, I personally don't think there's anything fundamentally wrong with the second, but I personally believe it's the third, and there's two reasons why. So the first is the fact that this generation, that phrase, although it may read very narrow and very specific, when you dig into the meaning and the root of the word, it can actually mean something much broader and larger in scale. It can mean something as big as nation, age, or a large span of time. So, so it isn't a, a narrow focus. And second is what Jesus says in verse 33 that I think ties in so critically. He says this, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. What Jesus, he's saying, is that the world, the world as we know it, right, the earth the, and the heavens here are not godly heaven, it's the, the sun, the moon, the stars, all of that's going to pass away. All of that is going to come to an end. But he's saying that my words, Jesus' words, They will not come to an end. They're eternal. will always be proven true. And by framing it this way, by framing and positioning the world this way, I think it ties directly back to a statement about this generation, humankind seeing the return of Jesus. What he's saying is, yes, the world is going to end. At some point, this all comes to a close. But I promise before that happens, I'll come back for you. I will come back for my disciples. I will come back for my people. Because you see... The disciples, they, they would have been concerned about Jesus' return. Especially after he ascends to heaven, they're going to be talking, wondering, when's he coming back? And Jesus is laying the groundwork here for them to be able to remember and reference this. Now you might be thinking, well, why are the disciples worried about this? Because clearly in the book of Revelation, it talks about Jesus' return and, and mankind is still around and he's going to come back when you know, the world is fully populated. Well, that's true, but Revelation was written about 40 years after this. It was written by a disciple, it was written by John, but the disciples wouldn't have known that. We have the luxury of hindsight. We can say, oh, of course he's coming back. But for the disciples, they would not have known that. I mean, to be honest, the disciples didn't even fully understand at this point what Jesus had to do. They didn't understand that he was going to die and rise again. They didn't understand all those pieces or even what the kingdom of God was. So this here is, is, is Jesus really trying to reassure them and plant that seed of do not worry I will come back for you. I will return for you. So as we look at these three layers and how they've all peeled back the core, I think what Jesus is trying to tell us here in this first half is that the same way the trees begin to show signs of the seasons changing, so will the world show signs of Jesus' return. Jesus is coming back because he said so, and his words, they're never untrue. The world is going to be given signs, right? Signs for us to see and to indicate that Jesus' reign on earth is close at hand. 
And mankind will see this return take place. It may not be us here today, but the human race will see this take place. So you're probably thinking, okay, that that makes sense. But but, but Peter, I, I still don't understand what am I supposed to walk away with? I mean, that's good information. That, that's good facts. But I don't understand how am I supposed to apply that? What am I supposed to do with that? Well, that's what we see in the second half of the text. And Jesus is actually going to outline for us three specific things. He tells the disciples to do three things with this information. He tells them to take heed, to watch, and to pray. Take heed, watch, and pray. Sounds pretty simple, no? Well, let's take a look and see what the text says. It says this, verses 34 and 30 through 36. But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and cares of this life. And that day, being Jesus' return, come on you unexpectedly. For it will come as a snare on all of those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch, therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. So all three of these actions, taking heed, watching, praying, they're all tying back to that core point from the first half. Jesus is coming back, right? We should be taking heed, we should be checking ourselves, watching, prayerfully anticipating his return. To best understand this and understand how these three actions play together, I first want to look at what it means to watch and anticipate Jesus' return. When we understand that, I think it will help us see Jesus' bigger framework here. So what does it mean to watch and anticipate for Jesus' return. So when I think about that, I think back to something that I watched and anticipated for. One of the things that I I probably did, had the most anticipation for in my life was the release of Guild Wars 2. For those of you who don't know what Guild Wars 2 is, which is everybody here, um, it's a video game, right? It's a game where you get to make a character and play alongside your friends, right? And save the world and all that good jazz. But to really understand the importance of this to me is you have to realize my friends and I had played Guild Wars, right, the original, for almost seven years. So when they announced, just very high level, Guild Wars 2 is in development. Oh my goodness, they are developing a sequel. We were so excited. We began watching for every piece of information that we could find. Any, any article or post or, or tweet. It was, what is it? What are they saying? And we wanted to figure out when is it coming? We, the anticipation was just overwhelming. We were so excited for Guild Wars 2. And I remember the day they were announced the release date. And you could pre-purchase the game. And one of the things you could pre-purchase, of course, was a collector's edition. And I normally, I don't splurge normally for a collector's edition. Um, but this was Guild Wars 2, so I, come on. Um, so I had to. And one of the best things that came with the collector's edition, wait for it. 12-inch trophy of Ritlock Brimstone. This, I proudly can say, stood on my shelf for two years until I got married. And then I got moved to the basement. (laughs) But then we got a house, and she couldn't hide it anymore. So down in my man cave on the shelf, really just for me to see, is Ritlock Brimstone. This trophy symbolizes everything that I loved and anticipated and watched for Guild Wars 2. I remember the weeks before, the days before it launched, just just thinking and dwelling, and I just couldn't wait for that day to come. In contrast, why is it then that I've probably only spent a handful of hours really watching and anticipating for the signs of Jesus' return? That contrast... I mean, all of us, we all have trophies like this one. 
Maybe physical or, or maybe, you know, you know, in our minds. You know, it could be something like a, a prized possession. Right? Or it could be maybe a relationship. A relationship that, that you have in love or a relationship that you're pursuing and desiring. Or maybe it's a, an idea or a company or, or an app that you're trying to develop and foster into growth. Whatever it is, we all have these good trophies that, that we love and commit so much energy and focus to. Why is it then that we spend so little time focusing on the return of the God that we claim to, to love so much more? Oh, I love God so much more than, than this trophy. That our, our time, our focus, and our energy would, would speak otherwise. Because when I look at my own life, I have to ask myself, well, is it because, because I don't love God? Is it because I'm, I'm not actually excited about his return? Well, no. And I mean, if I'm really being honest, I do love God and I am genuinely excited about his return. So why is it then that, that that's off? Well, I would propose that it isn't because I don't love God or I'm not excited. It's because I don't fully understand what Jesus' return means and represents. It's the same reason that none of you here were watching and anticipating for Guild Wars 2 because you didn't know what it was. Because trust me, if you knew what it was, you would have been watching and anticipating for it. If you don't understand what something is and what it represents, how can you watch and anticipate in the appropriate way? It's the same with Jesus' return. Jesus is going to come back to earth here on earth. That is God in the flesh. That should be a wonderful thing that we're excited about. But you know what? It, it, it's hard for us to grasp. There is no frame of reference. No, we, we haven't experienced that, so how can we really connect with that? And I wrestled with that question as I prepared for today. And the best example that I can think of is when God shows up in a moment and really you know, a- answers us and maybe takes away some pain or heartache that we're experiencing. And we just have that one-on-one God moment. I remember a time where that happened for me was back in, in high school and we were at a summer camp. And at this summer camp, uh, we had the high ropes course and it was our day to do the high ropes course. So we all got there and everyone's going up. And I love the idea of a high ropes course. I just wish the high ropes course was, you know, a low ropes course and was like a foot off the ground because it looks fun. I just, I hate heights. I, I just get the jello legs and I lock down and it wasn't a good experience. So as I was thinking and watching all my friends do that, I was going, oh God, I, I want to do this. I really do, but I'm just so afraid. And my friends were super encouraging. said, oh, you can do it, Peter, you can do it. And I just kept wrestling with it. And I said, you know what? God, just take away my fear. Please, let me just enjoy it this one time. That's so why I you know, worked up the courage. I remember I put the harness on. I started climbing up, climbing up, and I got up there. And it was just Peace. And it it truly was inexplicable because to this day, I'm still afraid of heights and I've since done other high ropes courses where I'm a little bit braver, but definitely still afraid of them. But that day, that moment, I I mean, I feel like I could have just like ran and skipped and jumped up there with no care at all because it was just joy and no fear. God showed up for me in that moment, gave me that small taste of what it would be like to have heaven here on earth. Because you see, when Jesus returns... There will be no more fear. Right? When Jesus returns, there's no more anxiety for the unknown. When Jesus returns, there's no more selfishness or pride. When Jesus returns, there's no more cancer. When Jesus returns, there's no more mental illness. There's no more death of loved ones. 
When Jesus returns, there's no more stress, relationship problems, drama, baggage, whatever it is, you name it. All of that is gone. All of that is replaced. Revelation 21 says this, God himself will be with them. That's us. And he will be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There will be no more pain. For the former things, the things that we experience now, the baggage, the junk, the crap, whatever it is, those former things have passed away. And then he, that's Jesus, then Jesus who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. All things new. Why would we not want that today? Why would we want anything else besides that today? We should watch for it with the utmost urgency and the utmost anticipation. And because of that, we should be motivated to take heed. Right, take heed. Verse 34, but take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day, being Jesus' return, come on you unexpectedly. Right, Jesus is warning us that we're becoming so distracted living this current life that we miss what's at the end of the tunnel. Right, our life is such a small blip on the timeline of eternity. He's telling us you've got to take heed. The original language would say to be attentive to, be attentive to yourself. Check yourself, lest your hearts be weighed down and we lose sight of Jesus' pending return. It's so easy to, to miss these things in our life. It's so easy to, to dismiss them as, oh, they're not a problem. You know, it says here, oh, carousing and drunkenness. Oh, oh, please, I'm not a drunk. I don't carouse. But you know what? Carousing and drunkenness isn't just about alcohol. The spirit of drunkenness is is one of unhealthy desire, one of intoxication, control. The same way, you know, alcohol can control an alcoholic, so can power, anger, lust, or other things control our hearts. And then we see in the text also, he talks about cares of this life. Well, I mean, that's pretty open-ended. I, I mean, come on, if I don't care about my life, my life's going to fall apart. I mean, these cares, Peter, I mean, th- th- these are not bad things, but they're good things. And yeah, you're right. You know, family, kids, you know, friends. Well, those are good things. You know, a job, even a promotion or a raise. Those are good things. And even, you know, you know status or, you know, you know, relationships, all those things. Those aren't, none of those are inherently evil. They're not bad things. And you know what? I don't think that's what Jesus is trying to tell us. I don't think he's saying our trophies are bad things. I think he's saying, yeah, they're good things. But here's what he's saying. He's saying, you're choosing good things and you're missing out on a great God. We're choosing to live for good things and missing out on a far greater God. We hear all the time, you know, don't live for a number in the bank account. Live for God instead. It's like, yeah, that's great, except if I have nothing in my bank account, I can't live at all. I mean, come on, Peter, I got to save for retirement. That's a critical skill. Retirement is is a good thing, right? Saving money. It's a good thing. But there's a difference between saving for retirement and living for retirement. Think about it this way. How would you feel after working a hard 30, 40 years, you got that seven-figure nest egg in the bank account, and you walk out on that last day, and then all of a sudden, Jesus, all right, all aboard the bus to heaven. No, no, not today. Come back in like 10 years. I've got money to spend. We laugh, but that to me says there's a disconnect. The priorities are wrong because that's what we should want. 
And I'm not saying don't save, and I'm not saying, you know, don't be frugal. What I am trying to say, or what I think God is trying to say, is we shouldn't be so weighed down by finances, or so weighed down by our trophies, that we miss out on God. Or maybe for some of you it's not retirement, but, but maybe instead it's your kids. You know, I Peter might, well, my kids, they need the best chance at life, and for that they need good grades to get into a good school so they can be successful. I agree, I want that for my kids. But here's the question. What offers them the best chance at life? Good grades for a good school? Or a relationship with God and a great eternity? I'm not saying good grades are not important. They are important. But is it the most important? It's critical that we take heed and we assess these distractions in our life. Jesus goes on to tell us in verse 35, for it, so Jesus' return is going to come as a snare on all of those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Snare. I love that word. It it, it paints such a a cool image, this idea of we've got plans, we're going somewhere, all right, we're on our way, and all of a sudden, snare. Stopped. Well, God, I had plans. I I had good plans. Nope. I'm back. Time's up. You're stuck. You see in the text it says all will be snared. Not not the liars will be snared or the bad people will be snared, but all of us. That's because we all fall short. All of us aren't good enough. And and no matter how hard we try to prepare or try to jump across the snare, we're all going to be stuck by it. So what do we do? Do we try harder? No. We watch and we pray. Right? We pray that we are counted worthy to escape that snare. Because when we take heed, we realize that really there's nothing that we can do to make ourselves better. There isn't a level of try hard enough that'll get us there. When we take heed, we begin to realize that it's through grace that we're transformed, through God's grace. And through God's grace, he removes the snare from our ankle and allows us to stand before the Son of Man, to stand before Jesus. Verse 36, watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Third, Jesus tells us to pray. Now praying, that's always a good thing. Right? And in this case, Jesus tells us what we should pray for. We should be praying that we are counted worthy to be in the presence of Jesus. Right? When we pray, it shouldn't be out of entitlement of God. Give me what I deserve. I, I've earned it. No, it should be the opposite. God, please give me what I don't deserve. I, I haven't earned this. Count me worthy to be in your presence. Please count me worthy. Because counted worthy, although it may sound like effort or performance of, you know, earning the top score at the judging table of life, but it's not. It's, it's actually the exact opposite. If we dig into the original language, it would indicate it's something imputed or accounted. So not a worthiness earned, but a worthiness given by the judge. Because Jesus, he scored a perfect 10, and we scored zero. But because he died on the cross, because we chose to follow him and engage in a relationship with him, we can be given Jesus' score. We can be seen, accounted, imputed with Jesus' score. I heard a cool story recently about someone who was counted worthy of something that they really shouldn't have been, maybe. And it was this individual who was uh, in med school, um, or studying to be pre-med, and he was in chemistry class, and he was failing chemistry. So if you do that math there, you can't fail chemistry and go on to be pre-med. And he realized this, so he was praying to God, saying, God, I I thought you wanted me to be a doctor. I thought this was the calling that you'd put out in my life. 
So if it isn't, tell me what it is. But if it is, count me worthy. Help, help me through this exam because I have to ace it or else I'm out. And while he was studying that night, he fell asleep. And he, and he had a dream that he was sitting in a classroom by himself and up at the whiteboard or blackboard, there was a nebulous figure that wrote out 10 different chemistry problems, the problem, the answer, the whole thing. And then he woke up from it, so vivid. And he opened his textbook and he checked. And he went, yeah, it was, it's sound chemistry. Oh, we got to get to the exam though. <laughs> Runs off to the exam. When he gets there, the 10 questions on the test were the 10 questions he had dreamed about. Passed the test, went on to be a very uh, well-known doctor nationally. And you would know him as Ben Carson. And you can actually look this story up for yourself. You just Google Ben Carson chemistry test on YouTube and you'll actually see him tell his, you know, his version of the story. It's a little bit longer. But he said, God, count me worthy of something that I have not earned. Take heed, watch, pray. All three of these things, Jesus is not talking about working harder. He's talking about being aware, about focusing and living towards the right target. His return his kingdom. Don't choose good things. Choose a great God. As I was preparing for today, those actions and those words began to really sink into my life and into my heart as God convicted me. Because I thought about, what do I watch? What's my anticipation and energy focused on? And I realized my job at PNG can take a lot of that focus and energy. My job is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. But if I was to list my priorities, I would have told you, oh, it's God, and then it's family, and then it's my job. But as I look at my life, it's really my job, my family, and then God. If God is even third, he might be farther down. So I'm still wrestling with God, praying through it with God, saying, God, count me worthy. God, transform me. Show me grace. Help me readjust the priorities in my life. And that's my challenge for you guys today. I challenge you this week to do the same thing. To first, take heed. Right? Check yourself this week. What worries of this world are, are weighing you down? What trophies are distracting you? Good things that cause you to lose sight of a great God. And then second, begin to watch. Begin to anticipate Jesus' return. Let it sink in about the power and the importance of what that represents and how that's truly the thing that we should want the most. And then third... Pray. Right? Pray for God's grace. Pray that you would be bestowed worthiness, that his grace would work in you. Not that you would try harder, but that you would lean more into God and that God could work in our lives. Take heed, watch, pray. Don't choose good things. Choose a great God. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are coming back for us. Thank you that you promise and your words are true that you will return for your disciples, that you will return for us one day. And I just pray that you would help us to watch vigilantly, that you would help us to anticipate that with joy, that we would check ourselves, that we would take heed of the trophies, of the good things in our life that distract us from you, that you would show it to us this week. You would lay that in front of us to say, this, this is what's distracting you. And you would help us wrestle through that. Through grace, not through effort, but through grace, you would transform us this week. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.
Well, thank you for joining us today. Um, if you're new here or you want to get connected more at Horizon, we'd love for you to stop by the hearth room. It's the third door on the left on the way out. If you came prepared to give, there are boxes out in the atrium. And I hope to see you guys next week.